Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this week is Ezekiel 20, verses 9 through 26. This is a reality of the fact that God saved Israel out of Egypt for his own namesake. And in so doing, he gives them some rules to live by. And Ezekiel 20 quotes from Leviticus 18.5 to suggest a hypothetical offer that if these rules were obeyed, they would have eternal life. By the end of the passage, however, we see that there are laws that are given by which Israel could not live. And at that point, we have two different possibilities. Within all of academia, there are three different views, but one of them I don't consider to be linguistically possible, so I'm not going to discuss it here. We can either say that there are laws given later in the Pentateuch that are not given to produce life. Or we can say that the reality of the later portions is pointing out that the hypothetical offer would never have actually worked because we as people cannot accurately obey the commandment. But realistically, regardless of which interpretation we take, the fact that there were laws added that couldn't lead to life shows us the fact that the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor, to lead us to the fact that we need a circumcised heart, that we need Jesus Christ. Because if we could have obeyed the the laws that hypothetically offered eternal life, then there would never have been laws that could not bring life, either those laws themselves or additional laws added. That's the main point I want you to take away from this beautiful text. Listen in, Ezekiel 20, verse 9. But I wrought for my name's sake, that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them, and bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt, and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes, and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. In my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. But I wrought for my name's sake, 
that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sights I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Because they despised my judgments and walked not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, mine eyes spared them from destroying them, neither did I make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your father, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew mine hand and wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen in whose sight I brought them far. I lifted up mine hand unto them also in the wilderness, that I would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them through the countries, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, and had polluted my Sabbaths, and their eyes were after their father's idols. Wherefore, I gave them also statutes that were not good, and judgments whereby they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts, and that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb, that I might make them desolate, to the end that they might know that I am the Lord. Well, good morning again. It is my pleasure and privilege to bring us back to the book of Matthew after our much longer than expected break. And to jump into Matthew 19, verses 13 through 26. When we left off, in the, left off in the book of Matthew, we were introducing the narrative unit following the discourse on the church, the discourse on the Messianic community. In hostility, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus with a question. And he responds by reminding them about the wonderful beauty of marriage and creation and calling his messianic followers to live lives of reedenized morality while they re wait for reedenized bodies and a reedenized world. And after the comments on the good of marriage and the good of singleness, Matthew continues his narrative in this way. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. 
And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go, and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Father, we come before you, trusting that all things are possible with you. With men, there are many things that are impossible. Indeed, the most important things are impossible with men. But with you, everything is possible. And so we come to be dependent upon you and to ask that you would do the work that only you can do, to touch our hearts as we read and study these words to help us and to guide us, as Corabel already mentioned today, guide us to receive them with open minds and open hearts, to live in submission to them, and to be ready to have you speak to us through the words of Scripture, your book, your revelation. Cause us not to see anything else today, Cause us not to see me. Cause us to see you and your glory and your wonderful, wonderful words. Words of life, Lord. 
And so, Lord, we pray for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is better equipped to climb a mountain? Someone who has lived all his life in a wheelchair or an athlete? Who is more likely to afford a fancy dinner? Someone who can't afford a living situation but is living on the streets going from shelter to shelter or a billionaire? Who is more likely to win in a fight? Excuse me for my nerdiness, but Steve Rogers, that is Captain America, when he's a, a young weakling before he gets the super soldier serum that turns him into strong Captain America. Or Steve Rogers after the super soldier serum. The answers begin to be pretty obvious. The athlete's going to be better equipped to climb a mountain. The billionaire is going to be better equipped to afford a fancy dinner. And if he lacked the integrity, Steve Rogers could more than well enough destroy young little pre-serum Rogers. But in the world at large, the answers aren't always as obvious. And this text pushes against directly why that is. And we're going to see that as we look at three scenes that Matthew provides for us, each one focusing on Jesus interacting with a different person or group of people. And it begins in verses 13 to 15 with Jesus and the little children. Jesus and the little children, Matthew 19, 13 through 15. We read again. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and departed thence. So here Jesus is going about his regular public ministry. We don't hear much about what particular aspect of his public ministry is going on here. But what we do hear is that as he's engaging in it, there is brought unto him little children. In regard to status, the lowest of the low. They come to him, or rather they are brought to him for the intention of receiving a blessing. Those who are bringing them to him want him to lay his hands upon him and pray over them. They're coming. They're being brought with no inclination of what they have, but simply to ask. But... The disciples, these collection of various people, including fishermen and tax collectors, these people who of themselves were of lowly status, are going to rebuke, are going to say, no, 
Don't bother the master with such insignificant children. Leave them out of it. The disciples rebuked them. But then comes verse 14. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. He looks at the situation of what's happening, and he says, Do not rebuke them. Do not forbid them. Suffer, that is, allow them to come unto me. Allow them to come to me and receive this blessing from which they are requesting. Their low status does not mean anything to me. I have time for them. Bring them in. And then he gives the reason. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. It's easy enough and not entirely wrong to start thinking about children's ministry in regard to these words. We're thinking about how we relate to people like Ethan who come into this church. There's an element of that, of the welcoming spirit we should have. But the point seems to go even deeper and more beautiful. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Flip back a page or two to Matthew 18. That discourse, that speech of Jesus, that speech of Jesus that he gave about how the messianic community, the community surrounded around Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, should be structured. And this is how it began. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily, I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is calling back to these very words where he said that anyone who wished to be in the kingdom of heaven, anyone who wished to receive life, needed to accept that lowly status of a little child. And so it is of the little children that the kingdom of heaven belongs. It's of those of us who become like little children, admitting we have nothing in our hands, can come simply to request a blessing. After he says these words, Jesus does lay his hands on the children, and he leaves to continue on with his ministry. And then we move into the second scene. 
No longer Jesus with the lowly status of little children, but now Jesus with a rich man. Verses 16 through 22. Jesus with a rich man. Matthew 19, 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go, and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In this new situation, in this new place that Jesus is in, we have one not brought to him, but coming to him. One being a lot more active in what's going on. And he doesn't come with the intention of receiving a blessing with nothing in his hands. But rather he comes and says, Master, what good must I do? to have eternal life. It's a certain sense of self-justification. If justification is the fact of being declared to be right with God, this man is asking a question of what he can do to receive that de declaration of righteousness. Because he wants to receive it based off of his actions. What good thing must I do to have eternal life? I gave them my laws, which if a person does, he shall live. This perspective is carried by the rich man, and so Jesus responds. My personal translation of what Jesus says is, why do you ask me about what is good? There is none good but one. If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. The question at root is not directly about why he's called good, 
There's something odd about the situation, but the point Jesus seems to be making is that he, unless he is good, cannot clarify what is good. If you want to know what would give you eternal life with God, then the only one who truly is good, that is God, is the one who would have to tell you. And so Jesus asks him, why do you ask me? Now it's unclear whether the rich person is connected the dots to say, well, I ask you because you are good. I know you are good. But at any rate, we do know that he is good because we know that he is the one that is good, the one being God. And he tells him, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Obey the word of God. And it's strange then that this rich man, almost without batting an eye, will immediately ask, which commandments? Which ones? Maybe he wants there to only be a select few that he can follow, so he can dot his I's and cross his T's on theirs. Or maybe he just thinks that the commandments are not actually that hard of a standard. Hasn't realized that they're actually given such that they cannot be lived. But Jesus obliges with an answer all the same. Primarily, he goes to the ten words, the ten commandments. Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus begins by what we know as commandment number six. You shall not kill. You shall not commit murder. And Perhaps we should note that Matthew's already referenced this commandment. In Jesus' words in Matthew 5, Jesus intensifies the commandment to say, Yeah, that's what you've heard, but I say unto you that anyone who holds a grudge against another in his heart has killed him already. And then he keeps going with, Thou shalt not commit adultery, which Jesus also mentioned in Matthew 5. But I say unto you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery already with her. Thou shalt not steal. If we follow Jesus' same train of logic, we could say that you have already stolen if you're in your heart. If you are engaged so much in wanting something that someone else possesses. Whether that be money, whether that be power, whether that be influence. If you possess it such, if you desire it such that it's an overwhelming desire, overwhelming passion, and you've already stolen it in your heart. Thou shalt not bear false witness, not lie about another person. That's particularly what number nine says, but also particularly having a life of honesty and integrity where lying is the exception rather than the norm. Then he, he jumps out of order 
and goes to what we know as number five and says, honor thy father and thy mother. This first institution of authority of the parents over the children, honor those authorities that God has given in you. It doesn't take long to look out in the world and see that this is something that isn't common. Submission to authority seems like a, a relic of a bygone era. Submit to government, submit to parents, submit to bosses. And then he finishes it with Leviticus, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Not just loving your neighbor, but caring as much about your neighbor's welfare as your own. Treating your neighbor as you would yourself want to be treated. Caring for and being considerate in that way of others. The point being, properly understood, these words are already an impossible standard. Any number of them can be ones that we struggle with within our heart, if not an actual fact. We've all had situations where we've said, thought, or done something that was in danger or in violation of these particular commandments and the reflection of God's character that they are. This certainly seems quite the apologetic to remove any semblance of self-justification. But this man is ready to continue trying to justify with his own actions and self. In fact, we haven't heard anything about how much money he has, but it would be fair right now to already say that he is a rich man because he's rich in his own good works that he thinks will justify himself before God. And so verse 20 says, The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? He looks at everything said and said, Yeah, I can do that. I'll, I'll do you more if you want. In regard to these standard, what do I lack? What do I not possess? What can I still do to have eternal life? And then Jesus says, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus continues to engage this man on his own terms. You want to know what you want to do. I'll keep giving you understanding of what you are to do. And so here he says, go. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to fulfill what you're lacking, go and sell what you have. Give to the poor. In so doing, you will have treasure in heaven. 
In so doing, you will have the ability to come and follow after Jesus. I think there should be a, a question we have about why Jesus is engaging the questions in this manner. Tom is correct to point it out today in, in Sunday school about the fact that no one can obey the law in order to be saved. And yet, Jesus is here consistently pointing out law and things to do. The distinction between religion and the gospel is that religion says, go and you will be approved. And the gospel says, come, you are already approved. Jesus is here saying, go, do things. And it strikes as strange in light of what we know about Jesus' message of the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here I think we are well helped by church history. And particularly the work of, 15, of the 1500s in the Reformation itself, and particularly Martin Luther. You might hear Luther and immediately think Lutheran, but to be honest for a second, Martin Luther would hate the Lutheran church. Martin Luther instead has a significant reality of pulling back out the gospel truth that was lost in the Middle Ages. And without him, there would be no Baptist theology or Presbyterian theology or Methodist theology. And so we are grateful for God's work within him. And in particular, he helps us in this text in how he understands law and gospel. In his view, you can look at scripture and the entirety of what you find, you could group into one of those two categories. You could group it into a law, a statement of what God expects, or the gospel, a grace that you are already accepted. And while he would accept that there is a reality that the law, as in just God's demands upon people, has abiding relevance for the Christian, because God does care about how he lives. He also says that its primary purpose is to point us to the gospel. Its primary purpose is to give a standard so impossible that we recognize we cannot achieve it. Indeed, Luther writes that the law defines how far it is to go and what it is to achieve. Law, the law is to terrify the impenitent with the wrath and displeasure of God and drive them to Christ. Put that into today's language. The law is to terrify it's to scare those who are unrepentant, those who have not turned to Jesus, those who are self-justified like this rich man. It's to terrify them with the fact that God is angry at sin, that God has a just wrath and displeasure. That means he will punish sin. And to cause us to recognize that we are among those who are sins and should be punished. And so we should be driven to Christ and to faith in him as our only hope in life and death. 
So here it seems that's what Jesus is doing. Pushing this rich man, hitting him where it hurts, and causing him to realize that the standard that God has for what it would mean to enter into life is something that he could never actually achieve. So that being broken by that impossibility, he would come to Jesus Christ and accept in faith what is freely given. But in verse 22, we see that that's not what happens. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now we hear that he is indeed rich when it comes to monetary wealth. He hears what Jesus says about selling his money and giving it to the poor. And he doesn't accept it. He goes away sorrowful. He goes away sad because he has many possessions. At the end of the day, and quite tragically, he loves his money more than he loves God. He loves his money more than he loves eternal life. And he loves his money, it seems, more than he loves the poor. In reality, God was never his God. Money was. And he's unwilling to turn from that God to turn to Jesus and receive salvation. These two accounts have much that are in contrast with one another about the attitudes of those who are either brought or come to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just, or I should say Matthew, doesn't just leave us with these two accounts to compare and contrast and figure it out on our own, but continues on with Jesus' teaching and gives us a third scene that in reality continues on into next week. A conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Matthew 19, 23 through 26, Jesus with his disciples. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus takes this as an opportunity to teach his disciples. He amens what he says before he says it in saying, Truly, verily, I say unto you, A rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
It is only with great difficulty that a rich man like what we just saw in verses 16 through 22 would enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's, after all, coming with all of his pomp and circumstance. He's coming with his status as a rich man, saying how much he's obeyed the laws of scripture, unwilling to instead be passively brought like a little child to And so he says it is with difficulty that any rich man like this would enter into the kingdom. But then he keeps going. And he says it again. And he actually intensifies it. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you've probably heard something about a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of a Needle. It's fairly small. It's a myth that was invented around the Middle Ages and has circulated ever since. But there are two problems with interpreting it in this way. One is that there's no historical evidence that such a gate ever existed. And the other is that it doesn't fit with the jive of the passage to take it in that type of figurative way. Jesus isn't trying to say that it is difficult for a rich man to enter, but impossible for a rich man to enter. Just like it's impossible for a large camel to make it through the eye of a sewing needle. You and I couldn't even make it through the eye of a sewing needle. Much less a large camel bigger than us. It's not just hard or difficult, it's impossible for it to occur. The kingdom of God is not something rich men can enter into. And in particular, we should note that Matthew rarely uses the term kingdom of God. He almost always uses, as he has elsewhere in this passage, kingdom of heaven. But here he seems to be highlighting the fact that the rich man has a different God. And that's why he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Because after all, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and mammon. The disciples are shocked and amazed at this reality. They were exceedingly amazed and ask, who then can be saved? They're surprised and trying to rebuke the little children from coming. And now they are surprised again that the rich man is rejected. And they want to know who then can be saved. Who then enters into life? Who then, in reality, enters the kingdom of heaven? The disciples were surprised earlier in the chapter at what Jesus said about marriage. It's a subversal of expectations. So too, this is a subversal of expectations. And indeed, 
a good bit of the rest of this narrative unit, will show that Jesus's kingdom is upside down. It's not what you would expect. The other thing that comes out significantly in this narrative unit is an increasing of hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees. But also was highlighted in Matthew 19, 12. Literarily, it's a beautiful introduction as it shows both key themes of this section. The disciples are here amazed. How can anyone be saved if this is the way it works? And there's a sense in which they're right. But there's also a sense in which it's so much simpler. Because verse 26 shows us all we need to know about who can be saved. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It is humanly impossible for the rich man to be saved. Indeed, it's humanly impossible for any man to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. Thanks be to God, our salvation is not of man, but our salvation is of God. A God whose purposes cannot be thwarted, cannot be stopped. A God who has no maverick molecule against him, but exercises everything according to his perfect will. With God, all things are possible, including the salvation of any man. But the reality of what that means is that means we need to come to him ready to accept the salvation that is completely outside of us. We don't come to him like the rich man and say, what do I have to do in order to have eternal life? Instead, we are brought by the little children that he may lay his hands on us and pray for us, that he may bless us. We have a great problem of sin. We've seen that already in how we interact with the standards that Jesus here gives. That sin must be punished. And we can't get around it by any justification of ourselves or any righteousness of our own. We have nothing in our hands to bring. We must simply cling to the cross of Christ. When it comes to entering the kingdom and having eternal life, the question cannot be what we can do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. Our hope in life and death must be rooted in that Jesus died for us and rose again. And in that way, then, we are not our own. Come to Jesus and be saved. Call upon him for the forgiveness of sins Come to him freely in the same way as anyone else. In the end, there is a question. Is it really those who are well-to-do that are set up in life? 
It's not the rich who are able to afford. It's not the athlete that can climb. It's not the strong who win the battle. But as Caroline Cobb well captures, there is a mountain only the lame can climb. There is a table only the hungry find. Only the beggar will have the currency when need is all you need. There is a victory only the conquered gain. There is a glory that you get when you give up your name. Oh, the peace when you finally yield your fight and surrender rise. Come with open hands in need. Come hearts broken, bended knee. A gift can only be received. Come to the mountain. He carries the cripple to the feast. Come to the table, come sit. He has saved you a seat. Come and eat and drink without money and without a cost. He has paid it on the cross. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, has paid it on the cross. That we have the opportunity to stand forgiven, not because of what we have done, but because we have come to receive a blessing. Lord, do help us to remember how we stand as little children. Help us to remember that it is of such little children, humble and lowly in status, that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Help us to serve you and not anything about our money or anything else. Help us to regularly fight for that and just help us to be reminded of all that you have done and it has been paid upon the cross. Thank you, Lord. And I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>